0: Right now, though, the city of Vancouver, as you've likely heard in the news, is taking a look at road tolls for trips to the downtown core and asking for a request for proposals to look into charging motorists a fee to drive into the downtown core. Again, the city has issued that request for proposals that to conduct a feasibility study on a road use fee in the city centre. And it looks like it would involve a variety of factors, including the type of vehicle entering the downtown core, the time of day, as well as traffic congestion. Well, joining me to talk about this a bit more is Gordon Price, a Canadian urban planner, also a former councillor in the city of Vancouver. Thank you so much for being with us.
1: Hey, Jill, and thanks for the upgrade there. I, I'm not an urban planner, but I'm uh, close enough.
0: <laughs> I'm sure you could be I, on, on, on some level. Let, let's give you the promotion. All right. uh, but you do know the streets of Vancouver, and certainly this is an idea and a topic that has been discussed for years. What are your thoughts on a mobility toll, a toll to drive into the downtown core of the city?
1: On a scale from zero to 10, as to whether it might go ahead, I'll give it a zero. <laughs> uh, and, it, and with the provincial government, the one that took the tolls off the Portman Bridge, uh, it's going to stay that way. Uh, I can see getting it up to maybe two or three, uh, but, you know, don't count on it anytime time soon. Oh,
0: it's not something that's been overly popular. And I think then you throw a pandemic into things where the downtown yeah. core is pretty much a ghost town on a lot, of, a lot of the time now. And businesses and companies saying they want to encourage people to come back. It does seem a little counterintuitive to be telling people, OK, you can come back now, but you're going to have to pay more.
1: Well, you know, we are kind of used to, to tolls or road pricing. After all, we pay transit fees and there is parking. That goes back to the 1930s when we started charging for that. And it is a kind of road toll you're just paying for the, you know, the piece of asphalt where you stop. But and the principle we know actually does work. It it's been tried out in about seven different cities around the world over the last two decades. And, and the results are generally favorable, in fact, I think in every case. But it says a lot that over two decades, there's only seven cities that have tried out something that we know works pretty well, if that's what you're setting out to do.
0: And the cities that do it, I, I, don't, I would say, for just the ones that I can think of off the top of my head, they are much larger than Vancouver.
1: Yeah, and it looks as known maybe New York might go ahead. I, I do think that actually might make a difference. There's a North American city that would try it out on that scale. And, and if it works there, then it does set a precedent that does have impact. But again, not anytime soon, and I'm still a little skeptical about New York.
0: So why do you think we keep having this conversation in Vancouver?
1: Well, it, we got to have the money from somewhere. You know, we want the roads maintained and we want the transit certainly, all that good stuff. So it it does come down to what form do you, well, you don't want to pay it, but ultimately what form do we decide is necessary in order to maintain, you know, the system. It's a pretty expensive system, and we're used to a very high level of service. We complain about it a lot, but that's because we're so dependent on it. and So take your poison. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's something as well that has been discussed in that many have raised the the concern of, can you really do it in just the downtown core of Vancouver? Because where do you cut it off? If you're not basing it on kilometres travelled, then somebody who lives one block from the ring is going to be paying the same to, to drive two blocks as somebody who maybe is driving in from Chilliwack. And is that really fair if people need to come into the downtown core for whatever reason? Uh, it has been talked about on a broad... Water, uh, range, talking about uh, Metro Vancouver as a whole, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of appetite for that either.
1: Well, you use the word, uh, by the way, that is the reason these don't go ahead, and that's fair. You're never going to find a fair system. But if you are looking at the place where scarcity can be priced, and that's the nature of our economic system, you know, you got something everybody wants, but not enough of it, but a price on it actually works pretty well. And that would be the justification for it, and in a place like downtown Vancouver, conceivably, or but we do it you know in many different places, we just don 't think of it that way. Uh, ferries are kind of road pricing um, when you go to a stadium and you pay a higher price on game day that 's pricing. Uh, Again, we know it works. We just don't like it.
0: (laughs) Uh, So back to your point then about parking and paying for parking, that being a type of road fee. uh, You're right, because after 10 p.m., it's uh, later than a lot of cities in Vancouver. But after 10 p.m., you don't have to pay uh, to be at the parking meter.
1: Sure. And, and uh, so if you really value it, and how do we find out whether you do? You're prepared to pay. Now, the thing is, though, everybody has to use the road. You know, you think about the road. It's one of our truly democratic spaces, regardless of who you are, so long as you're driving or what kind of car you're driving. When you have to drive or not, it's free. And the guy next to you has it free. In that sense, you really are equal. Now, there is another way we end up paying for a scarce good that we overuse, and that's through congestion, and that's effectively a form of road pricing, too. And, and this is where the pandemic and the consequences of it are going to be very interesting. I don't think anybody knows yet, but the traditional rush hour, we all try and get more or less to the same place at the same time, while it may not disappear, it's certainly going to change in some form. Uh, do you have to be on the road at the same time when you can, you know, do your email at home and then maybe choose to drive at a time when there's less congestion? Or more likely, is there, if we all want to be back in some form at our workplace, does it have to be downtown? And so we may find that there are less congested spaces and therefore less incentive or less need to actually price it that way. But again, it's still going to come down to how you are going to pay for all this? And if we end up driving more, Uh, You know, because we're not going to use transit as much, then we're actually going to see pretty significant increase in congestion in some places and uh, probably more need to pay for more roads. So back again, same question.
0: Uh, What about the issue as well? Council is also looking at making permit parking on streets citywide. So it doesn't matter if you live in a part of the city where there's always street parking and it's underutilized or if you live in a part of the city where it's very difficult to find street parking. And I think also talking about trying to get or getting a request for a proposal on some kind of uh, software that would scan license plates to enforce the rules. What are your thoughts on making permit parking on streets citywide?
1: idea of scanning license plates—that's very 20th century <laughs> even the place that started at uh, Singapore they'll be switching over after all you got a phone <laughs> you got a phone with GPS and yeah you don't have to scan license plates uh, but you know the idea of charging for parking hey I'm a West Ender we we were the first to do this and it works great the people who need the street parking pay for a permit once a year uh, and it's going up in price, over $100 now, I think. Hey, but I don't have a car, and what are the reasons why? You know, I don't really want to have to pay that, don't really need the car. Okay, well, that, that was convincing. That's just another factor that goes into us making our decisions. So what do we get? Well, we get uh, a place where even in the congested West End, chances are you're going to find a place to park if you have a permit, if you're prepared to pay for it.
0: And what about the issue of making the permits connected to the type of vehicle? And if you have a more environmentally friendly vehicle, maybe you get a break on the price.
1: I would say just the reverse, in fact. Well, let me, let me put it this way. As we switch over to electric, and, and while the prediction may be 2030, I'm going to make a guess, it'll be hard to buy a fossil fuel car by maybe 2025, somewhere in there. I think it's going to be a very fast change. So we don't really, I think, need to give an incentive for electric vehicles. And as a matter of fairness, if they're using the roads, that's really the major expense here, uh, collectively, uh, they should be paying. And they will. I have no doubt about it that electric cars will, will be charged in some way if they're not paying a gas tax.
0: Earlier today, we heard from many federal leaders, including the Prime Minister, also from Ontario Premier Doug Ford, talking about the attack in London, Ontario.
2: I'd like to pass... My sincere condolences onto the Muslim community across Ontario, across Canada, and our prayers and thoughts are with the family of this terrible, terrible tragedy. This is nothing short than a terrorist attack on innocent people based on their faith and their religion, and there's no place for that in Ontario. We're a community that sticks together, and we will be united behind the Muslim community. I have asked the local medical officer of health to have an exemption for a gathering, a vigil tonight, which I'll be attending. We're passing legislation to make sure people can gather and and grieve with with the family and with members of the Muslim community. We stand behind you. We support you. We'll stand shoulder to shoulder because this can never ever happen again in our great province, in our great country. Thank you, and God bless.
0: Joining me now is Yusuf Fakiri, Quebec Director of Public Affairs with the National Council of Canadian Muslims. Thank you so much for taking some time for joining the program today. Thank you for having me, Jill. Uh, I, I I don't know what words are, are possibly uh, are, are even adequate. I don't think there are words that are adequate to, to express how people are feeling the reaction to what happened to this terrorist attack in London, Ontario. I did hear from one of the politicians earlier today calling on Canadians to do more than grieve. What can Canadians do?
3: Absolutely, Jill. Thank you very much for calling it for what it is. It was a terrorist act. It was an Islamophobic act on foreign innocent individuals that needs to be condemned in the strongest terms. We are for the fight in the soul of our nation right now, Jill. And we, we said we would say never again when, when the tragedy in Quebec City happened. But here we are today, four and a half years later, mourning once again. Our brothers and sisters across the nation from the non-Muslim community can do a lot. One, reaching out to your to your neighbours in the Muslim community, but also holding your politicians at both the municipal, federal, and provincial level accountable of what they're doing in terms of their work with Islamophobia and the work in terms of uh, their strategy on white supremacy. Obviously, information is coming, emerging out of this tragedy. But all too often, Jill, there's a nexus between white supremacy and these acts of Islamophobia or anti-Semitism. And this is what we need. We need a national strategy on all levels of government to do this. Denunciation is important. Standing by the community is important, but it needs to be backed up by political action. I'm on my way to Quebec tomorrow. I'm on my way to London in a couple of hours. Uh, we thought we would never see this again. I cannot express my emotions properly because my heart aches for the family, for the Absol family, and for my brothers and sisters across this nation.
0: Uh, even the the Premier of Ontario, just in, in that bit of audio that I played, said we need to make sure this doesn't happen again, ever again, in Canada. And like you said, we said those same words, we heard those same words after what happened in Quebec City. And here we are, once again, talking about a family that was doing the most benign thing. They were going for a walk, uh, something that they do every evening, and, and they were mowed down. Uh, what else... Uh, what else? And you just went through a whole list, reaching out to neighbors. I think people have, have difficulty with that, and maybe we shouldn't. But how would you suggest people reach out to their neighbors and do so in a way that's respectful and helpful?
3: Absolutely. Send an email, call, you know, tell them that you care about them, tell them that they belong here. A lot of us in the community right now, Jill, we're fearing for our lives. We do, the, the very sanctity of life, one of the most benign things, as you articulated, going for a walk. We're fearful right now. Knowing that we're welcome, and this is the tragedy itself. We all too often we say never again, but all too often, tragically, it's not backed up by political action. There's a problem here, Jill, that We have to really think about: is that we have an issue at times when there's a discourse of, of you know, a certain discourse of Islamophobia at certain circles with, at the at the political level, and sometimes there's a denying. of uh, There are certain leaders that have denied anti that, that have denied Islamophobia and the issues of racism in some provinces. These need to be accepted. They have to understand that this exists. And Islamophobia has real-life consequences. And here we are today, Jill. We say never again, but here we are. Four family, an entire family perished, uh, you know, and leaving a nine-year-old orphan. What does that say about our society, Jill? It says that we have to do work. But what's also important, we need people outside of the Muslim community to work on a collective effort to dismantling. This nexus of white supremacy and Islamophobia. We have to work on this together. It cannot just be on the Muslim community. It has to be all of us, our brothers and sisters across the nation. And we have to do more. There's so much work left for us to do.
0: When you use the word Islamophobia, and certainly that word has been used a lot in the past couple of days, I've also seen some people, uh, members of the Muslim groups, members of Muslim communities, uh, taking issue with that word, saying putting the word phobia makes it seem like it's something out of someone's control, that it's not a choice. Where Here we have the most horrific of circumstances where someone did make a choice. They made a choice to mow down a family, a family that was out for a Walk. do you think we need stronger language, or do we need to be calling people out for this or addressing this in, in more definitive ways?:
3: Absolutely, Thank you so much, Jill, for your question. No, we need to call people out. We need stronger action, but it's all related to political action. If you look at this tragedy, this individual um, decided to go and kill these beautiful people because of the faith that they practice. He effectively said that I'm going to uh, essentially motivated by a hate because of the, pra- of the religion that these individuals practice. And effectively what happened was he went and he articulated and executed this murderous terrorist act. So words are strong and important, Jill, but followed up by the words there has to be real political action. And at the end of the day, unfortunately, when you have tragedies such as this, the tragedy in Toronto last summer, the Quebec City tragedy there was a shooting in Montreal a couple of months ago. When it keeps happening, there's a fundamental question to, we need to ask is, why is this happening and what can we do? The response is, why is this happening? Meaning it means that we have not done enough. The question, the answer to like, how is this happening? It's very simple. It effectively says that political action, like words have to be basically, like you said, definitively have to be backed up with political action. There needs to be a strategy and we have to have that at all levels of government.
0: There also one of the other words that's being used, many people saying that this was unthinkable and a counter to that being if this was unthinkable to you, then you were now you've never been in a position where you've been targeted, where you've been called out, where you've had a racist attack launched against you. If, If you've never thought about this, then you've been in a very privileged position of never having to think about this. Is it something is and not as simple as? But is it something where here we have a person arrested who? What we know now in these very preliminary, the preliminary part of the, the the police investigation is no criminal history. We don't really know. Perhaps someone knew. Maybe this person said something to somebody. Maybe this person had made comments that were racist to somebody. Is it? Is it a, a small step of? always calling that out, always making sure that when we see that and hear that, we call it out and and make sure that that we don't just let it go.
3: Absolutely, Jill. It's that and it's much more than that. And when people say it's unthinkable, well, it's thinkable because it happens to the Muslim community quite often. If we look at Alberta, just like the last, you know, in Alberta, there was eight attacks in both Edmonton and Calgary combined in the course of 12 to 13 weeks. If we look at stats, According Stats Canada, I believe in, since 2018, there's been a 42% um, 42% increase on acts of uh, you know uh, racism against places of worship. This requires education for all of us. This requires for us to wake up, to wake up, lift the, you know lift our eyes to know that this is an issue that's happening across our nation. We cannot hide anymore from this issue, and it's for the soul of our nation. Today, it was was this beautiful family. Who's next? We are fearful, Jill. And today is the Muslim community. Is tomorrow the Jewish community? Is the next day the Sikh community? Who's next? We have to stop this at the core.
0: Many people are going to be taking part in vigils. As we heard from the Premier in Ontario, they're going to be relaxing some of the COVID-19 protocols, uh, still staying safe, but relaxing those so people can come out. What would you like to see, though, after the vigils and after people take that time to give condolences and to show support? What comes next?
3: Political action, Jill. We'll be holding all the levels of government to to hold hold them accountable for their political action. What are they doing? It's great to stand with the community, but what are you going to do about this to put a stop to this? What are you going to back this up with? Are you going to have a strategy? Are you going to work with the Muslim community? Are you going to have us as partners and and work with us? But it does not just stop at the political level. We also need uh, our fellow countrymen across the nation uh, to help us in this collective effort, because this is an issue that affects all of us. I'm on my way today to Mon- to London. Tomorrow, I'm organizing a vigil in Montreal. So we're we're uh, you know we're very grateful for the incredible support of, of Canadians, uh, non-Muslim Canadians, and it means a lot for us. But what it's important for us is after today or after tomorrow, we're to never forget this, and we're to translate that not forgetting part of what we're going to do uh, to to put real action into place, Jill.
0: All right, Yusuf, we will check back with you uh, and invite you back on the program, Uh, I'm hoping in the very near future. But thank you. I know it's uh, incredibly uh, sad and very busy right now, but thank you for taking some time with us.
3: Thank you very much, Jill, for your
0: time. Thanks so much for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. We're going to talk a little bit more now about Bill C-10. And it was in the news yesterday, you might remember hearing about this, the Liberals with the help of the Bloc Québécois voted to start the clock to end a parliamentary committee's study of this bill. And this bill, as you know, subject to many concerns about free speech and the regulation of social media. Joining me to talk a bit more about this is Bruce. Bruce Party. Bruce Party is a professor of law at Queen's University, also a senior fellow with the Fraser Institute. Thanks so much for being with us.
4: Thanks for having me, Jill.
0: Uh, you've written about this as well. What are your main concerns with Bill C10?
4: Bill C10 threatens to regulate the uh, online content of individual users of these uh, tech platforms. Uh, it does so, though, indirectly. It's not, it's not going to um, put individual Canadians' social media content under the purview of the CRTC, but it is going to allow the CRTC to regulate those platforms and thereby require the platforms to regulate that individual content. So the government is going around the back door. It's doing indirectly what it's not willing to do and not, not shouldn't be doing, Directly, And and in that respect, it does indeed re- uh, represent a, a big threat to the online free speech of Canadians.
0: One of the big issues has been that clause that was originally in there saying that it wouldn't be going after individual users, something that an individual might post on YouTube or some other social media channel. That was taken out and there was a lot of debate about why it was taken out, why it couldn't be put back in. Do you think if that was put back in, would that be enough to protect people's freedom of expression?
4: It would certainly be a whole lot better with it in than with it out. With it in, then it seems to be pretty clear that that's not the the, the mandate of the CRTC. Now, of course, you never want a statute in place that is... is is, is, is um, bec- made less dangerous simply because of one particular exception in the statute that that's asking for trouble but nevertheless this this bill would be a whole lot better if that exception was still there
0: uh, Stephen Guibault, the minister, has repeatedly said that it's not the goal of this bill to go after the individuals, and it's not the goal to stifle free speech. And and but instead, it's about Canadian culture, and it's about uh, holding the bigger companies accountable. What do you say to that?
4: Well, sure, he would characterize it that way. But if he meant what he said, then he would ask for that exception to be put back in. Right now, the CRTC is going to be given the mandate to do all those things that he claims that the bill is not designed to do. So if he meant it, it would be easy to craft the bill in such a way that it excluded those things. But that's obviously not what he wants. And he is sneaking in censorship under the guise of protecting Canadian culture. It might be, for example, that if you made a video and posted it on YouTube, and it wasn't Canadian enough in some respect, or it wasn't to the government's um, liking in the sense of the policies that the CRTC had adopted, then YouTube might be obliged under CRTC directions or guidelines to essentially bury it so that nobody watches it. Now that that to him might be simply providing for Canadian content. But what it really is, is censorship. Uh,
0: There's a a line in the piece that you wrote, and people can see this uh, in the National Post. I think it's on the Fraser Institute website as well, saying, Bill C-10 will not supervise online speech directly, but indirectly threatens to strangle it. Is that the scenario that, that you just outlined?
4: That's exactly right, yes.
0: Uh, so it is when we hear from Stephen Gibo saying we're not going after individual content. I mean, technically, I suppose what he's saying is true, because like you said, they're making the companies do it.
4: Right. So here's the distinction. They're not going to make individual Canadians who use these social media platforms subject themselves to CRTC regulation. The CRTC, the CRTC is not going to come looking for you. If you posted a video on YouTube, but your, your video might not show up because of the regulation that, the, that YouTube is now subject to. So the individuals are not subject to regulation, but their content will be because the content is on a platform. And that's what I mean by doing indirectly what they're not doing directly.
0: And in that scenario, I'm guessing an individual, if you took it up with YouTube or took it up with whatever platform you've posted your content to and said, hey, why is this not to, showing up anywhere? Why is this being pushed down? You're not going to have a whole lot of traction with making that argument with a giant like YouTube.
4: Oh, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have thought so. The The irony to this is is as follows, I think, that right now these big tech platforms are already engaging in in a certain degree of censorship and instead of the government coming in and protecting Canadians from that big tech censorship they're essentially arranging things so as to make the big tech companies do more of it not less
0: do you think it's a scenario then of uh, people might not be paying that much attention to this uh, saying oh well I don't post to YouTube, I don't do this anyway, so it doesn't really affect me. But is there a bigger issue here with, if the government is trying to censor what people are posting and what people are doing online, what's to stop them from trying to censor and trying to weasel in on other parts of our lives?
4: Well, of course, that is true. No no question about it. That It's it's just the tip of the iceberg in this respect. Uh, on the online aspect of this um, put another way, so if if your content is subject to this regulation that you post on YouTube or whatever else, the flip side of that is that if you're simply consuming that content, if you're watching the videos or reading the stuff, that means that you're not able to see what's there. If you wanted to see, you know, videos by this person or on that topic, you might not get them popping up in your feed because the CRTC has told YouTube not to allow that to happen. So this is not just for people who post. It's also for people who, who are taking it in.
0: Would they be available for people taking them in if they searched for them? Then is it a, is it the scenario do you think where the content won't pop up? It won't be uh, recommended for you. Would they be able to find them or they won't be available at all?
4: Well, see, this is part of the unknown because What we're talking about right here, right now, is the bill. And the bill simply uh, subjects these platforms to CRTC regulation. And what the guidelines and policies of the CRTC will be, we don't know yet because they haven't made them. And that's not what's on the table at the moment. So all this does is open a big, huge door to the CRTC inserting itself into the way the online world functions in this country. And, And that's bad news.
0: Are there parts of the online world where maybe there is the, more attention does need to be paid? And and I don't think it's part of this bill, but I think you mentioned this in your piece as well. If we're talking about something like hate speech, if we're talking about there's an election taking place and somebody is actively putting out information that is wrong, that is incorrect, is there a way or do you think, is there a role for tech companies, these online pro, uh, uh, platforms? a role for them to play in that scenario, that that is okay? That's not, we're not talking about simply stifling free speech.
4: No, not not in my view. No, as soon as, as soon as you give someone the power and responsibility to decide what is true, you've got a problem because now the truth is what they decide that it is. The whole idea of free expression is that everybody gets to say what they think is true. And in those expressions, there's going to be a lot of stuff that's not. But it's our job as individuals to hear all that stuff and to decide what is right and what's not right. Is this valid? Is it not valid? If you insert somebody into the middle of, of that dialogue, you're 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 really asking for trouble.
0: What if it's uh, hate speech along the lines of What if it's What if it's uh, defaming somebody? What if it's going uh, crossing the lines into something that could be considered criminal?
4: Well, then you you just. Uh, identify what the solution is. If somebody defames somebody else, then that somebody else can sue them for defam- defamation. That's what's supposed to happen. And if somebody, for example, advocates violence online, then they should be charged and prosecuted under the criminal code. All of the laws in Canada already apply to those kinds of speech online. You don't need more in order to have the normal rules apply. We already have curbs on our speech defamation, criminal code, and so on, as you, as you said, y- y- you don't need more. All you're asking for is censorship.
0: So if you were going to put yourself in the shoes of, uh, of Minister Guibo or put yourself in the shoes of somebody who is pushing for this bill to go ahead, what would the reasoning be?
4: Well, the, the, the justifications that they've tried to give... Uh, include the idea that they're updating the Broadcasting Act so as to bring it into the modern era and allow the CRTC to regulate not just traditional television and radio and so on, but these n- new ways of communicating. And the problem is when you, when you open it up in the way that they have, uh, you, you are opening the whole situation up because because of the differences in the nature of the communication, because the Internet is much more of a two-way thing than the one-way television broadcast, um, just opening that up to CRT, sorry, TRC, TRC regulation is, is asking for trouble that they haven't figured out yet. They haven't really figured out how to do this without endangering the free expression of individual Canadians.
0: And how concerning is it as well that they've limited debate on this bill, uh, something that really we don't see happen?
4: Yeah, we we don't see happen, and it shouldn't happen. Uh, There are a lot of concerns about this bill that a lot of people have expressed. A very wide range of people have said this is bad news. And uh, unlike what the minister has suggested, the amount of study that, that this bill has been subject to is not that great. Lots of people have not had a say yet, and uh, it's really alarming. It's and, and ironic, is it not, <laughs> that they are censoring the study of a bill that is being criticized for threatening the censorship of Canadians. Uh,
0: it certainly is. Uh, certainly is that Bruce Party. We'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for making the time for us. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for being with us. Well, a lot of talk about travel and travel restrictions. The border between the U.S. and Canada. The Prime Minister earlier today was asked about international travel and talked about some easing of restrictions for Canadians returning who have both doses of vaccine, although he wouldn't go into any great detail on when that relaxing might happen. Could we also see similar rules at the border? Well, let's talk once again to Len Saunders, Immigration lawyer in, uh, with Blaine Immigration. Len, great to have you back on the show. Hi, Jill. How are you? Very well. How about you? Not too bad. Uh, so, the U.S., I understand, has eased the travel recommendation. It's gone from do not travel uh, for 61 countries or ease the recommendation, and that includes Canada, to uh, a lesser, a less kind of strict or harsh warning.
5: Yeah, so what the Americans have done is they've now categorized Canada as a level three travel area. So instead of saying it's a danger zone, they're now advising Americans if they travel to Canada that they should be either fully vaccinated or only go to Canada if it's for essential travel, if they're not vaccinated. Now, most Americans can't go up there because of the travel restrictions anyway.
0: Right. You'd still be quarantining when you if you were a Canadian, say a dual citizenship or something like that.
5: Exactly. I'm a great example. So I haven't been north for almost 15 months. But if I was to come north, I would have to be quarantined for 14 days.
0: Even though you're double vaccinated?
5: I've, I've been double vaccinated since February, four months ago, and I still can't go north.
0: Uh, do you get the sense then, or are you hearing anything that that might change? Because the prime minister was hinting at that, well, at least for Canadians saying if they're double vaccinated, you've got to think if, they, if it was a visitor who was in the same scenario, double vaccinated, uh, that there might be some relaxing of that quarantine rule.
5: Well, exactly. So I heard a few weeks ago that the Americans were going to fully reopen. I still stand by that. Two weeks today, my, my advice released what I've been told from most of the officers locally here, is the American border will fully reopen with no restrictions. So that's put a lot of, I think, pressure on the Canadian government to come up with a plan. I've been saying for months they have to have some plan. They just can't every month close the border. It's like Groundhog Day. Every month they just keep closing it for another 30 days. So I think what you're hearing is some of these backroom, you know, obviously policies that they're coming up with that I think we're going to hear in the next week or so I don't think it's going to be the day before I think they're going to give people time to you know look at these new uh, I guess loosened restrictions for entering Canada so that more people can enter Canada, whether it's for pleasure or business purposes or return home.
0: So when you first said that a couple of weeks ago, I know you threw everything into a tizzy with people trying to confirm this and to figure out exactly what was going on. I think we still get the sense that Canadians and even the U.S. border, they don't want to say anything on the record they don't want to say anything specific or have it to be attributable because i think you're right they want to come forward and have some kind of plan involving both countries does that make sense
5: oh absolutely and i think you know what's happened is these you know behind the scenes negotiations are ongoing and that's why you see all of these rumors leaking out and i think the canadian government is finally making a step in the right direction The border has to open at some point. At some point, the border is going to open. It's just a matter of when. I don't think they're going to fully reopen it going north. I think it's going to be in some kind of phases. And it makes logical sense to allow a fully vaccinated individual like me to enter Canada without doing the quarantine. Otherwise, why are people being vaccinated? Why are people going about having their two doses if it's for really no purpose? And so... I'll be shocked in two weeks if you don't see the American border fully reopened and the Canadian border at least partially reopened to some sort of uh, vaccinated travellers. That's my guess.
0: Well, and it makes sense with what the Prime Minister said today because it wasn't like he slipped up and said, oh, we're working on a plan for Canadians returning. If they're double vaccinated, they've had both doses, uh, working on a plan to remove the quarantine. He's obviously put that information out there to get people thinking about the fact that that is what the conversation is that's being had. And if that's for people flying into Canada, then wouldn't it also be for for people crossing the border at land border entries.
5: Oh, absolutely. So I think you're going to see the same policy on land um, and and air if you're flying or driving over. It's still a steady stream. I sit at the Arch Park every day, and it's taxi cab after taxi cab dropping off Canadians walking north. Now, all of those people still have to quarantine. But I think, you know, now that you're hearing some of this chatter that there's a plan coming out, there's going to be a lot of happy travellers that won't have to do that 14-day quarantine. And it's interesting, two weeks ago or two and a half weeks ago when the last 30-day extension came, none of the media talked about it for the first couple days that it was announced. And I said to some of your colleagues, why aren't you reporting this? And every, you know, all of your colleagues said to me, everyone just expects it to be closed for another 30 days. This is different. People are now expecting it to open. When you see the high vaccination rates, 60% of the Canadian population having their first dose and many people now expecting to get their second dose in the next four to six weeks or, or eight weeks, I think a lot of people now look at it as time to allow travel across that border.
0: What about the vaccination rates in Washington state in that it was the, the premier of BC, I think said a few days ago, there were some concerns that while things started off really strong, that it had kind of stalled out with the double vaccination, but it was stalling out at about 62%. Well,
5: I agree with that, but you know, I was at a Seattle Mariners baseball game last weekend and there's vaccination stations that anyone can walk up to and be vaccinated. So, you know, the the opportunity is there whether people will actually do it is another thing i myself when i was um, given the opportunity to have my vaccine my first dose back in january i took that opportunity but a lot of people aren't going to do it regardless but i think making it more available to go to canada if you've had your vaccinations or attend like i was at a mariners game there were certain sections that were only for vaccinated people That's the incentive for more people to get vaccinated. I don't think you'll ever see 100 percent, but I think you'll see the numbers creeping up. I think Canada overall, you're going to see more people being vaccinated with bow shots at some point than down here. But who knows?
0: What was it like being at a Mariners game? I want to live vicariously through you now for a minute. What was that like? It was strange. So
5: I went I first went to one about a month ago and everyone had to have on their mask, even sitting in seats. And they're all socially distanced, like there would be you know, maybe someone 10 rows away or seats away. But last weekend, there's, there's sections that were packed shoulder to shoulder, the fully vaccinated section. So it's, it's nice to see things getting back to normal. That's why I think the American border is going to reopen, because most Americans see what I see, things going back to normalcy. So regardless of what the Canadian government is going to do, I think you're going to see the U.S. border reopen But it doesn't help most Canadians. Nobody's going to come down to this area and get gas and groceries and pick up their packages that have been sitting at these mail places for a year and a half if they have to go back and quarantine for 14 days. And so I think that is what's going to put the pressure on the federal government to make some sort of kind of loosening of the, of the Canadian border.
0: Right. And then uh, we get to into the conversation again as well. That will mean opening it up for Point Roberts, for the people that are still there. Uh, some Canadians have places across the border in Birch Bay. They have cabins and such that they haven't been to in more than a year. And making sure that they're, again, people that have been double vaccinated, going down and coming back and, like you said, not having to quarantine.
5: Well, exactly. And, you know, Blaine is still very quiet. I rarely see Canadian license plates down here. So that's, I think that's going to be stranger than going to a Mariners game, you know, with no mask on, is seeing the Canadians coming back because it has been very quiet in Blaine and Bellingham. You can still park, you know, right in front of Trader Joe's and, and Costco with. with Lots of open parking spots, so soon it's going to be, you know, lots of Canadian cars again. And I know a lot of my neighbours and uh, and colleagues are going to be happy seeing all the Canadians coming down once again, spending their money.
0: Uh, are things still busy at Peace Arch Park?
5: Peace Arch Park has got very busy, especially on weekends. The parking lot on the American side quite often is full. Lots of weddings going on. Lots of people, as I was saying earlier, still walking into Canada with their suitcases it's a steady stream. So that's going to slow down, too, once the border reopens. You're not going to see as many people using the park. And people have been coming from all over the country, Canada and the U.S., to get married and see their partners, family members. So it's, it's been a nice area for people to reconnect.
0: All right, Len, uh, we will touch base with you again, like you said, uh, still sticking with uh, what you had said about later this month, and certainly we're getting hints of that from the federal government here. We'll talk to you again about this, I'm sure, but thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Jill. Talk to you soon. Well, if you are a fan of the Arts Club Theatre going to the live shows and you've been missing that during this pandemic and during the closure of those venues, you will want to pay close attention to this because the Arts Club Theatre Company has announced some plans to reopen. It won't look the same. Nothing, it appears, does at this point. Won't look exactly the same, but there are people coming back to the stage. And our show contributor, John Jang, has a look at that.
6: Good afternoon, Jill. For the first time in a year, and a bit really, I can finally bring some good news when it comes to the arts. The Vancouver Arts Club Theatre Company announced today their reopening plans, which includes three new shows that will kick off late next month. Ashley Corcoran is the Artistic Director for the Arts Club, and she once again joins us here on the show. Ashley, first of all, what is your reaction to the fact that we can finally have something positive to talk about when it comes to the arts?
7: Oh my gosh, we're thrilled. Uh, What we love to do with Arts Club is plan theater. And so now being able to plan and put those plans into action, uh, we feel like... We're back to our old selves. So yeah, we're quite optimistic. We really um, appreciate that um, the BC Public Health opening plan is quite clear and quite transparent. And it gives us the information we need to to be planning to open our events in sort of a uh, gradual or a staged uh, way. So we're very, very happy.
6: I know that many of your staff members were out of work for over a year as a result of the pandemic and the restrictions. So is this summer lineup an opportunity for hopefully most of them to get back to work?
7: Um, We will definitely be able to bring back uh, many of our team members, in particular our fantastic production team. So the people who build the sets and the props and the costumes, Um, some of them are able to come back this summer. Um, We're able to hire artists again, and you know the Arts Club, uh, as a a not-for-profit in BC, hires the most freelance artists. um, Pre-pandemic time hired the most freelance artists in British Columbia, and so being able to hire artists again is really exciting. Um, And then we also are are planning for a more significant reopening come November um, or. A larger reopening i should say come november and at that point we're going to be able to hire back even more um, production staff and also more artists
6: so then let's get right into it uh, with the summer schedule here i believe three productions have been announced as per the release today can you tell us a little bit about each of them
7: yes absolutely so we've got three shows two are going to be in in person and one is an audio play uh they are all again one person shows um so built for smaller audiences. Uh, The first one is called I, Claudia, and it's um, by the playwright Kristen Thompson. And it's a a, a beautiful play about a preteen that um, is is coping with changes in her life. And uh, I saw the original production about 20 years ago, and it's one of those pieces of theater that will make you tear up in one second and then guffaw and laughter literally in the next second second. Um, It's a mask based piece. So the actress, who's Lily Baudoin, will be playing uh, four different characters and for each character she wears not a COVID mask, but a theatrical mask (laughs) that helps her transform um, from character to character. Um, And Marie Farsi is directing it uh, and it's just so delightful and so funny and so thoughtful. Uh, and it's one of my most favorite plays I have ever seen and I'm ecstatic that we're doing a production of it and bringing it to our audience. Um, the second piece is called Beneath Spring Hill, the Maurice, Maurice Ruddock story, um, and this is written by Bo Dixon. Uh, it's going to be starring Jeremiah Sparks, um, and it's directed by Bobby Garcia, and it actually, it's going to be at the ground violence stage, and it looks at a real- a real life story, a true story, um, Canadian history, about the miner Maurice Ruddick, who was trapped uh, with his colleagues underground in the 1958 mining disaster in um, Spring Hill, Nova Scotia. And by all accounts, it was his positivity, his courage, and his musicality, which um, meant that he and his colleagues, spoiler alert, survived um, this terrible tragedy. Uh, and so this piece investigates the historical truth, um, investigates who Maurice Reddick was a person, and also one of the reasons why I love it, it's such a, a beautiful piece of theater, is it involves a lot of music, um, and Jeremiah is an incredible musician, um, and so we're excited to we haven't been we haven't put on a piece of music um, for a long time and we're known for that so we're excited about being able to do that at the club again and then the third piece is actually going to be an audio play um, so if audiences are still hoping to like engage with us in a digital way um, this play is called Mala and it's by Melinda Lopez uh, directed by Sherry J. Yoon um, and starring Carmen Aguirre and it is a Funny and cathartic and surprising and theatrical work um, about a woman who is um, uh, her. She's in her fifties and her mom is ill, so she's dealing with um, being a caregiver for her mom and the switch that happens for so many of us as we age, um, caring for our parents. Um, but it's uh, the play again is told in such a um, empathetic and cathartic way it has tons of humor in it um, and yeah we're really thrilled about these um, three great plays one at the Newmont stage in Olympic Village one at Granville Island stage on Granville Island and then one in people's earbuds um, uh, through the internet.
6: I'm also curious, Ashley, you know what has this past year been like for you personally, because as the artistic director, I'm sure that there were many tough days over the past year where even you were worrying about what the future was going to be like, and also maybe worrying about just your career and if arts would ever be the same
7: Oh my goodness, big question um absolutely it's it's been a It's been a really rough year for everyone. I have to say i feel I feel very lucky that I've had my job and I think that's probably been the hardest part is that many of my colleagues both at the Arts Club and then looking across Canada have not been at work this year and that's a really, really hard thing to struggle with as a leader um, having to let people go. Uh, not something that I ever expected would be part of my career having to make such big changes, um, organizationally. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been, it's been a hard time, but I would say like for me, I've been thinking about it as a triangle and a side of that triangle are, or is, is our audience and staying connected to our audience. And so what kind of work can we do to, to keep a connection? Um, the other side of the triangle of our staff and trying to keep our staff as employed as possible and as communicated to as possible. Um, yeah. And keep their mental health as strong as possible. And then the other side of the triangle, the freelance artists that we work with that, you know, many of them on March 13th found out they lost 18 months of work, you know, in one day and, um, and thank goodness for things like the SUSE, the Canadian Emergency Wage Subsidy, which has helped us keep employees at their club, and we're so grateful for that, and the CERB, which um, allowed freelancers and independent contractors to receive some kind of support, um, because when times are normal, those freelance artists um, don't receive any kind of EI. Um, so it's it's the choices we've made this year in terms of the small plays we did in the fall or the audio plays that we've been doing or ways we've been opening up our space for writers to come in and use our venues to, um, you know, find a place of peace and quiet. It's all been about the, the, those three sides of the triangle, keeping connected to our community and how important artists, staff and audience members are to us.
6: She is Ashley Corcoran, Artistic Director for the Vancouver Arts Club Theatre Company. Ashley, I love hearing the happiness and excitement in your voice again. (laughs) It's good to hear that. I I can honestly just get so excited knowing that these shows are coming up. By the way, tickets go on sale online June 16th at artsclub.com. Ashley, thank you so much for your time here today, and best of luck with all these shows.
7: Oh my gosh, thank you. Thanks for having us and being curious about what's happening at the Arts Club.
0: All right, there you have it. Completely up to date on the restarting of the Arts Club Theatre Company. Thanks to our show contributor, John Jang, for bringing us that story.